Hello and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. My name is Juma McGowan. I'm a dyslexic, an actor, writer, and now I'm a podcaster. This podcast is to support the incredible work of the Dyslexia Foundation, whose mission is to unlock the full potential of children and adults with dyslexia so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. Now, they do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read for free. Everything is free at the point of use. My guest today is the Norwegian artist, illustrator, animator, educator, and director of the powerful and deeply award-winning short animation I'm Dyslexic, Mads Johan Ogar. He studied in Britain, gaining his BA in animation and VFX at Falmouth University, and his MA from Exeter University in special education needs. As an educator, he stresses the importance of owning your diagnosis. I wanted to speak to Mads because I adored his films on his YouTube page, I'm Dyslexia in particular, and his educational videos. He marries his immense talent as an animator with this compulsion to educate and to help other people. I love speaking to Mads. He's got an incredible mastery of the English language, considering it's his second language and considering he really struggled learning English at school. He's very erudite. He's got a great vernacular. He talks with great empathy about learning to accept failure as just part of the process in order to to grow and develop yourself. Speaking to Mads, I took away that you are never too old to stop learning. A reinforcement of that, a reminder of that, because all of us, we're in a constant state of change and flux, and we can be constantly learning and developing ourselves. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Mads, welcome. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. Um, could you possibly give us a potted history of, of the things you've done in your career, um, where you uh, went to school, things like that? Yeah. So I'm from Norway and I have lived the majority of my life in Norway. So I actually went to university in, in England. I went to Falmouth University where I studied my uh, bachelor and I went to Exeter University where I took a master in special education. But in terms of my career... I am a full-time freelancer in illustration and animation, and uh, I make films about mental health and special education, sharing my experiences dealing with dyslexia and dyscalculia. And I'm currently illustrating a book called Hacking the Code with a woman in America, Gea Majoring, which is also about dyslexia. So I'm doing a lot of things. Amazing. Amazing. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, for anybody who hasn't seen them, what we're going to do is we're going to attach some links to your YouTube and certainly to the brilliant I Am Dyslexic, which has won many awards. Was that what the American author, did she see your animated work online? Well, yeah, she has. But uh, I actually found her through Instagram and I just uh, DM'd her and asked, hey, do you need to illustrate it? Because I see you are writing a book. And uh she said yes. And then I showed her like my work, the film, I Am Dyslexic and all the work that I have done. So that's how that went down. <laughs> Such a gorgeous um, Thank you. little film. So we're going to absolutely attach the, uh, the link for people to have a look. So when you approach creativity, is there a process that you have that you, that you find is most useful to you? Or is it very intuitive? Well, I think it's very intuitive. Like I found... For me to actually be successful going through school, I had to draw, I had to be creative, otherwise the system didn't work for me. So I've developed that skill just, oh, 
you say a sentence, I get an idea and I just create it. So very intuitive, I think. Yeah. And you've talked a bit, I've seen in, in many of your videos, because you're, you're an educator, about making your own workarounds, finding your own way and almost building an approach to life that's completely unique, your own. Was that something that you found at school that you, that you started developing that or was that come later? Well, actually, to tell the whole story, it's because it's, it's very intervened with, with school and, and my approach to life in general. I was diagnosed with dyslexia at the age of 11. Prior to that, I was quite, you know, the typical dyslexia story, no, uh, no help. I did get help from my parents, but at least I felt neglected from, from school and dealt with, uh, struggled with mental health and a lot of that because I didn't get any acknowledgement. And in that process, I realized, wow, okay, I learned differently. I cannot learn the way that the school system wants me to do. What do I then do? Yeah. And then I started to realize, oh, okay, I am responsible for myself and educating myself. So I started to, for example, look myself in the mirror and, and tell something positive to myself getting my confidence up because it was extremely low wow and then i kind of become addicted to exploring my own mind i kind of like to say some children like to take apart toys but i like to take apart my own brain so i just continued exploring how and why did i do certain things and then in that process i learned what works and what doesn't and just continue that and still doing that today. And honestly, I love it. <laughs> yeah. So you, you essentially became like your own um, like life coach. You're sort of coaching yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Centering yourself almost like a psychologist. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I do that to other people now as well. So, you know, that, that's a skill that keep coming up. And it's very useful when I, I work with teams, for example, in animation and for my special education related work as well so you know it's all intervened yeah i mean we've done about three of these now these podcasts and what i found is because of that initial period where you know you struggle at school i certainly struggled at school maths was my thing because i love stories i love storytelling dyslexics have an empathy because they understand what it what it feels like to struggle and feel lost and you're an educator as well as being an artist. Is that what has driven you there? Because you could quite simply, you know, do your animations, make good money as a freelancer and not try and give back. Do you feel compelled to give back to the dyslexic community? Uh, it's kind of a weird one. I have this mindset of I want to help little Mads with the things he never received. So that's kind of my approach to it. I don't feel compelled, but I feel feel motivated by that to help and support those individuals that I see, wow, I, I can relate to you, but I don't feel like I have to do it. Uh, but it's certainly something that, you know, I like to pick out people's brain and uh, tell them like, oh, but you are, you actually just tell me, you know what to do, you know what you want to do, but you're actually putting yourself into that hole that you, you, you can't get out of. So just helping people turn their mind around and, and get out of that is one of the greatest things. <laughs> and I definitely use my art to amplify that, to combine the two, to have a message in my art that also drive forward this wanting to support or, or say more inspire. You know, 
I, I can't do these things for you. And sadly, many people think that someone else can do something for you. But it's all about realizing, no, actually, you are the one who need to do something about yourself, but I can show you the way, you know? Combined, it is, they're very intervened. <laughs> and was that because you felt like no one was there for you when you were struggling? Uh, absolutely. Like, okay, yeah, my mom and dad has been a great support for me and they have done their best. But, you know, sometimes your parents are not enough, you know, <laughs> because they're like, oh, yeah, but you say that because you're my mom, you know, uh, or, or my dad. But of course they mean it. But at that age, you don't really think that way, right? But other than that, no, not at early stages. I didn't feel supported at all. And that's why it's so important when I realized I had to support myself. Yeah. Is there not that level of um, individual support in Norwegian schools? Oh, it is. It is. But it, it has changed now, obviously. I am now, I'm turning 27 this year. And this was when I was, I was diagnosed when I was 11. So things have definitely changed since then. And it's a lot better now, but I travel a lot to different schools in Norway, do presentations and workshops. And it's, it's a vast ocean in between some schools and the, the knowledge of teachers and how the school actually function at all. You have both extremes, right? And, and it's, it's sad. <laughs> but is it getting better? Yes, it is getting better. So yeah, some schools are like really strong and some schools yes. have, have no idea how to approach dyslexic people. Yeah, either they have no idea or they don't want to, interestingly, because they feel like that shouldn't be necessary because you have the same thing in, in the UK with dyslexic friendly schools, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's the thing that it's very big here in Norway as well. Dyslexia Norway is doing a great job with putting that into uh, the schools and encouraging them to do it. But there are always schools that feels like, oh, that is to focus on one type of individual. What about all the other ones? But of course, the message here is like, that's a school for everyone rather than just for dyslexics. But, you know, you have different mindset, especially from teachers and especially the principals, because they are not aware of how these things work. They are not learned in the school. It's still not in the curriculum. So you're meeting this other side that is not educated about it. But the reasons, uh, it can be vast different, but it comes down to knowledge, I think, experience. It's the same thing in the UK though, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, you said in your film, it's based on personal experience, but every experience is different. And exactly. That's, that's the real challenge. The sheer amount of money that you have to put into the one-on-one -on -one time with children with dyslexia, any child with special needs, it's, it's, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of money. And I, you know, I appreciate that it's difficult, but you know, the rewards for it are huge. I'm, I'm thinking often about this. I, I don't think it's enough just to make more awareness to these different uh, learning differences, as I like to call them. I think we need to change the whole system because teachers are not supported either. They are not getting the acknowledgement that many of them doing a really great job, but get burned out often over the first three years and they stop being teachers. There's a huge problem. Yeah. And, and some teachers, you should argue like, why are you a teacher? You just like your subject and don't care about your students. Like there, there are so many variables here, but I, I, I met so many teachers that are so tired. And it's it's sad. <laughs> so it's, it's it's a vast problem. No, it is. It really is. I mean, I'm an actor, but you know, when I've been out of work, I've worked in special needs schools, 
And I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand. You know, you get into teaching because you care so much and you love children and you want to help them and the buzz that they get off it when it when you know done their jobs and they've inspired and touched people's lives and then the disappointment they feel when they there's a problem child and they feel like they don't have the the requisite skills to properly help them it, it kills them and, and yeah I mean I've seen great teachers that I was trying to assist and they're just coming to pieces and I mean for one I don't know if it's the same in Norway but certainly over here they are so overwhelmed with paperwork it's insane. And it's, it's, it's the acknowledgement on, on all levels, right, in terms of mental health, not only by the child, but the, the teachers, the, the parents as well. It's like we're not looking at that as a society, are we? No, that's huge pressure from teachers all the time. And this poor teacher, you know, has to look after like upwards of 20, 30 or children at, at any one time. And they've got to be across all their needs. I, I'm kind of hoping in, in terms of our current situation with Corona and everything that there are some aha experiences from not only teachers, but also parents like, okay, what is actually working and what isn't. And some company says, actually, we don't want our employers to come back and sit in an office. You actually work better at home. And I'm wondering, yeah, is this a thing that could be obtained in terms of school as well? That some children really flourish in this way. Some doesn't, you know? Yeah. Will this make school system more difficult than it already is? Not necessarily. It's interesting times we live in. Absolutely. I mean, I think about that a lot. You know, think about the studies done into different, the seven different intelligences, and that you know, there's only fifteen or eighteen percent of children respond to the the British model. I don't know if it's the same in Norway, where very much the same. I think it's it's very industrial revolution type schooling, where you know the teachers at the front they teach for a little bit, write something on the board, you copy, you might collaborate a little bit with your next door neighbour, but that only really works for about fifteen to twenty percent of people, and then they're rewarded by other people who share their intelligences, and then of course you get to a position. A few years down the line and you know a ceo is in a boardroom and he needs someone to think creatively someone who doesn't think like he does and he's just surrounded by people who think in the same way as him and i mean yeah i think you're right i comment on that actually because it's, it's very interesting i'm sure you can relate in terms of since you since you're an actor the amount of people that actually or the system in general actually looking down on creative arts and say it's not valuable but when they come to for example creating a company or whatever they actually is a huge need for someone who can provide the creatives, right? Oh, yeah. And they're like, they don't know people, you know, because they've never interacted with these type of people. It's fascinating to me. But, you know, it's, it's such an important, that's that's where it starts for all of us, you know, education and how we learn. And I think you've, you've talked about this really beautifully in your YouTube videos is finding your way to learn. Yes. Because we're all individuals and dyslexia forces you into building a bespoke way of approaching how you learn. Exactly. I think if you don't do that, I don't think you will succeed. I don't think you actually go through the system that is currently. You, you, you sort of go, this isn't working for me, but in order for me to, in my case, because I had a passion, I had something I, I, I felt like I had an aptitude for, because I wanted to pursue that, I had to find the workarounds because if I didn't, then I, I wouldn't be able to have a career. Exactly. And I'm the exact same. I... I knew that I'm going to draw. Yeah. I'm going to get out of school and I'm going to draw whatever it takes. And and I, I've done that. that. That has been, and I, I am here, you know, but it had taken me a long time to get here. When did you find drawing? 
oh, I have drawn since I was little, you know, always been drawing. And that was the one consistent thing that I actually got acknowledged for in school and in general. So I was like, huh, it must be something here. And I kind of evolved that into like, okay, can I use drawings instead of, for example, note-taking? So I was drawing in class, taking notes in, in could be whatever, I can draw Donald Duck or I could draw Pikachu or whatever I saw in a classroom. Didn't matter. I, I am the type of person that can, well, an example, but my, my, my mom and dad recently moved. We found some old drawings on the attic and I looked at them. Oh, I remember that day just from that picture. Because that's, I, I, I think in picture and learning pictures. And I had to defend that because so many teachers thought I wasn't following the class. And, and when that happened, I had to really, really fight. Yeah. I thought, this is, this is me. This is how I have to do these things. And teachers are not used to people saying something against them like that, I suppose. But, you know, they took away my, my pencils and everything. So I start ingraining it into my desk with uh, whatever I had because I realized this works for me. Yeah. Well, that's, that's so interesting because not just dyslexic, but people who find that standardized way of um, being educated so difficult. And that's why often they act out and have behavioral issues. I mean, that's amazing to me. So you were literally having to scrape the pictures into your desk because you were, try- you were trying so hard to absorb the class and absorb the lesson. And this teacher wasn't, was looking at the evidence in front of them and were thinking, this is a problem child. Their behavior is, is problematic. I'm going to have to deal with them and not think, no, actually, this child needs to work out in his own way. Exactly. It's, it's, I was the type of child, instead of making a lot of noise, I was so afraid. So I didn't say or do anything. Other than I, I did what I was supposed to do. But I was so afraid to do anything that made anyone say anything to me. I was fortunate because I was one of the first. It's both fortunate and unfortunate. I was one of the first people in that school to get diagnosed with dyslexia. So I got all the, at the time, the support tools that existed, like audiobooks, a PC and a reading pen and some Norwegian spelling programs. But my teacher said to me, I'm afraid, or she was afraid of PCs. So she never trusted me when I had a computer. And sometimes she forced me to actually write a word on the computer, but then rewrite it on a sheet of paper. I tried to tell her many, many times, like, listen, that is the problem. When I put it down the the paper, I don't know if I write it correct or not. So she didn't understand it at all. And she put me in front. Everyone else was in groups in terms of where they were sitting in the classroom. But I was right next to her desk in front alone. I had this gigantic cable. I could probably have gone around the the classroom five times with this cable. This is where the electricity input is. So you have to sit here. Obviously, that was a lie. She wanted to make sure that I didn't cheat. It was a struggle. (laughs) Wow. I mean, you would have loved. So my journey... I was taken out of classes routinely and I'd have to, because my dyslexia is linked to, uh, I was born half deaf. So I had, I had problems associating words with phonetics, but I would have to draw, because I used to love drawing myself when I was, when I was younger. And I had to draw a picture that was 
you know, associated to a certain phonetic. So if it was a, a fur sound, I'd do, a, I'd do a picture of a frog and I'd have to every day go through this massive pile of cards, these hand-drawn cards that I'd done myself, sounding out the phonetics to different words. Yeah, that was, that's just, that's just brought it back. Talking to you has just brought back that. That memory, that's awesome. Thing. In that case, because something that really, really helped me to comprehend both, I'm dyscalculic and dyslexic, so, you know, it's a good mix there. When I, I got diagnosed with dyscalculia, when I was, I started secondary school, so 13. I had a great math teacher who was actually studying about dyscalculia at the time from his professor in Norway. Still, dyscalculia is not very acknowledged to the degree that dyslexia is, which is still low. <laughs> so I was very lucky, very fortunate. So she, I was tested several times by what she had learned and she brought in clay. And, you know, I usually say to people, because people ask, what is dyscalculia? And I have two ways to explain it. One, just imagine dyslexia just with numbers. That's a very easy way to explain it, even though that's not entirely true. The more complicated way, I would say, is look at your hands and then count how many fingers you have. Now, most people have 10 fingers. But can you see number 10 anywhere? <laughs> no. So how do I know that this amount of fingers is 10? I don't know. Although well, people are telling me, and people told me, oh, you're 10 fingers. Okay, but what does that mean? Because the symbol and the amount doesn't match in my brain. So, you know, I, in primary school, I wasn't allowed to count my fingers and such and such, which, you know, made math very traumatizing for me. And I felt very shamed. Uh, but when I got this great teacher in secondary school, she was like, oh, you're allowed to use not only your fingers, but all these different pencils and everything. Use anything you want. But she bought in clay so I can actually touch and feel the numbers. And that is was a game changer for me. Because have you ever met number two? Most people haven't. <laughs> Meaning they, they can't touch number two and they can't touch A unless you work in a hobby store or something because you, you're selling big, massive letters and numbers. So no, making in clay made more sense because I can feel the numbers, I can feel the letters. So I started to draw on myself. So when I do math today, I draw on my, not with any pencil, just, just my fingers, because I got making a physical image as well as a mental image of how this look, using multi-central learning to comprehend this number or, or letter or whatever it is. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah, for me, so my training as an actor, in order to prepare us for a scene, the school I went to, the whole thing was trying to get people out of their heads because uh, British actors sometimes have a propensity to intellectualize, think too much about the text, as opposed to it being lived in, in in their bodies. Of course, that's what we learn. You know, we've been learned to be good parrots. Yes. The, the training to get you into a scene, any kind of scene, was always... You do a preparation, which is innately physical. It has to be something physical, which is recreating the sensation that you're, try you're trying to get to. And the difference, I mean, it would be transformative for some actors, you know, who they were just, the text was, it was almost like a weight around their shoulders. I remember being in maths and feeling like it wasn't registering anywhere in my body. It was like, you know, the front part of my brain was getting really hot because I couldn't understand. I just could not process it as a, as an idea whereas i felt like i could in literature 
or you know, with a player, what have you, comprehend quite advanced ideas. But for whatever reason, you know, like uh, algebra was just incomprehensible, impenetrable. So that's fascinating for me. Like as someone, I feel like I benefited in terms of being an actor from those exercises that made it so physical. If I'd had that in maths, then maybe I would have took it, taken away more. But you definitely tried, you know, explore that. People assume that when you're out of school, you don't learn anymore. Go and explore it. I will. That's why I, will. <laughs> I always say to people that are in school that you have the great opportunity right now to try and fail, to see straight away if this technique works or not. Play. Play around with it. Okay, if you fail, great. Now you know that this may be isn't the right way for you to go. But that that's learning, you know? That's fail, fail, and then you learn from it. But we are not taught to reflect and and change in that change of way of learning because there is only one way of learning. And I met many people similar to, to yourself that are doing very physical things or whatever it is, can be musical, whatever, that as soon as they started to do that, the whole day changed. <laughs> Schools changed. So always focus on what you're good at. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. We always focus too much on the things we're already strong at and don't pay a mind to the things that we need to improve on because uh, it's difficult and it's uncomfortable. You know, I focused on, on drawing because I was strong in that and then I could develop that and evolve that as a learning technique to teach myself how to speak English or write Norwegian and, and do math because I used what I knew and implement that in the things that I don't know. That's the way, because you need confidence as a foundation. Yes. And what's, what's sort of developing is another one of the themes it feels like on this podcast is every guest I've had has a relationship to failure, that it's essential that you make friends with it. 100%. That you use it to improve yourself, to deepen yourself. It's learning. It's the essential way of actually knowing more about yourself and do the things that you want <laughs> but we again we were taught to be good parrots to just mimic and if you are then you are rewarded in your system and this is why so many who are doing great in school struggles when they go into work because they don't get that little candy whatever that is for every little thing they do yeah and, and conversely there's the people you know i meet them all the time in the acting world who really struggled at school. They hated it. It really didn't work for them. But by anyone's yardstick, they're, they're successful because they, they're tenacious. They keep going. They're passionate about something which propels them on. I think that's, that's again, something else where I'm sort of finding talking to different guests is that uh, once you find the thing that you're passionate about, then... You win. You, you need to reach rock bottom in order to know where you want to go. So I 100% agree with you there and everyone else that you had on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I could um, take it in a different direction. Yeah, please do. Who influences you? Oh, who influences me? This is, this is really an interesting question because I, I think about this a lot. Growing up, I realized that, you know, I couldn't see anyone else doing what I was doing. So I always looked, decided to look up at myself. And I, I still do that today. I mean, the person I'm most inspired by is me. Because I have all this experience from successes and failures, a lot of failures, as we just talked about, to take from. 
and I see it's relevant to be used in my work. So I am, uh, maybe that sounds strange, but I am my own number one influence. But other people that influences me, I am a huge fan of the work of uh, Ronald D. Davis. He is the author and the guy who created uh, Davis Dyslexia and uh, written Gift of Dyslexia, if you heard about that book. The book is very interesting because many academics do not like the book. But I dare everyone to listen or to, you can listen to it. It's an audiobook as well. But read a book, especially if you have a dyslexic child or student or are dyslexic yourself, because it will tell you so much about how you think. You know, my thirst for exploring and understanding myself got amplified after reading that book. It was the first book I bought myself willingly <laughs> because I, I saw someone talk about it, this book on YouTube that also was dyslexic. This is many, many years ago, like early YouTube. And I read a cover to cover and I was like, this is me. I, I do these things. I didn't know that I, that this is a thing. And, and this is, that this could be quote unquote part of dyslexia. Yeah. You know, it's exploring yourself. That's another thing. And that goes into simple mastery, which I just talked about with clay and stuff like multi-sensory learning and, and learning about yourself. Other than that, I'm a very huge fan of not everything he says, but Gary V. I, I like many of the things he talks about. I, I like his quick response. Like he, he's very optimized in terms of how we do business. And I, I really enjoy that. There are of course, great artists and, and great people who speak, so on, so on. But currently, and really always, I am always inspired by myself. This sounds probably strange, but that's what it is. No, not at all. If you come at the other end of, of a great struggle and you feel that sense of achievement, you, you should you should take um, inspiration from yourself. Is there any like artists? Because I found when I was watching your film, there was something of like Miyazaki was in there, Pixar was in there as well. It's uh, definitely like I am a gigantic anime fan mm. <laughs> and manga anime fan. That's actually how I learned English in the first place because I, oh, wow. I, I, I didn't learn English that well in school because I couldn't write Norwegian. How can I write English? So even though Norway is, is good with generally in, in, with English, but as a dyslexic child, why would I? You know, I, I wasn't enjoying it. Yeah. But what I did enjoy was comics. And I realized I can use, I, I want to watch cooler stories than just, you know, this Western one story episode. So I found anime episodes to be a lot more engaging as a teenager at the time. And then I realized, okay, it's in Japanese. I don't understand Japanese, but it's subtitled in English. Yeah. And I taught myself how to read English from watching cartoons. Wow. A normal episode was maybe 22 minutes. It took an hour to go through because I checked every word because it was that drive, you know. I want to know what this is about. And eventually, I could, today, I'm so fast reading the subtitles because I have mastered it. Yeah. And in that way, I learned to read English, comprehend English, but also I got better in writing Norwegian and my spelling improved. And people don't talk about this in school because... Oh no, you, you can only learn to read and write from books. That's not true. So yes, I have, I'm a huge fan of uh, Miyazaki. Uh, and I remember playing around with different styles for a film. 
originally was way more anime inspired in terms of style. Yeah. But I looked at um, Quentin Blake, the illustrator of Ruel Dahl. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I love the sketchiness. I always like the sketchy, rough feeling. And I felt like this is an ampli- it will amplify what I'm looking at and what I'm looking for. Yes. That's a huge inspiration for maybe the biggest inspiration, actually, in terms of character design. Yeah, that really, that really comes across that. As you say, that messiness. There's something really visceral about it in that, in that way that it feels like it's, you're consuming it with your eyes, but you're, you're feeling it in your body. And it feels like messiness feels more alive in some way. And, and that is what I feel current CGI, 3D animation, is lacking, you know? Yeah. That human-made touch is, is almost too realistic now. I'm not saying, like, I'm not saying everything is bad, but it's, it's, to me, I lost a little bit of heart. And a good example in this is Wallace and Gromit's, right? They did, did a test on this in, in terms of it used to be clay animation right fully but then they switched to cgi and then they re- they got negative response like they realized wow okay why why isn't this working as well so what they started to do they started to put digital fingerprints on the cgi or 3d models and people start loving again because you have that you see it looks like it's made by human hands yes and i feel like construction lines and sketchiness of drawings it's the same thing in my opinion <laughs> completely I, I think people feel like they feel there's something not quite right there there's they're not fully emotively connecting with it and it's it's in so much it's in like you know the modern yoda being cgi versus the original frank old no comparison or you know the the orcs in um, the hobbit versus the orcs in Lord of the rings yeah. because they are you know there's a human being in there you you feel like you can connect more i'm just like you know things like for me, um, oh god, what was a James Cameron film? Avatar. I just, um, I can't, I just can't connect. And I'm someone who I enjoy fantasy and I enjoy occasionally things like that. But because it's not human generated, it just doesn't. It's so far from it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting that one that film because there are people in the base of those models, but it's so strange yeah that it's kind of and it was so early on this 2008 i believe this film got out and it, it was revolutionary in in terms of that technology at the time which i think was the reason why it actually blew up in the first place but i i get you and i agree with you it's uh it, th- there is something there that is like oh this isn't real i think i think the reason why you know what it, it won't get onto anybody's like you know top 10 film reviews is that People enjoyed it while it was on, but it was so eminently disposable because it wasn't real. Whereas I feel like people routinely go back to the animated Disney films or, you know, Spirited Away because all the original Wallace and Gromit's because they have that visceral power and they have soul as well. But yeah, that's the thing. They have soul. And uh, you know, uh, I don't remember his name. Uh, what's the name of uh, the actor who plays Gandalf? Oh, uh, Ian McKellen. Yeah, you know, he had a breakdown while he was doing uh, filming on, on Lord of the Rings because everything was green screened. Yeah, he, if if I remember correctly, I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but he comes from a theater background. He he had a panic attack just from everything is green. Just imagine, of course, you have to do that on stage, but it's so so far away from standing on a stage or doing more traditional filmmaking. Yeah, so it's. 
on all levels. Yeah, it's really, it's really tough as an actor working with green screen because you rely then almost completely on your technical ability to see you through. Whereas it's such a social art form, you know, yours, you, you know, I'm sure you get an immense amount of uh, uh, artistic power from being by yourself and exploring with things because making a film or TV or, or theatre is so, it's innately social. You, It's so collaborative. You don't have other people there. Oh, it's so lonely, so tough. It's a fascinating industry, this whole film thing. But taking it back to, 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 to my film, it's, it's very interesting to see you know, I always hoped that it would be well received. And yes, okay, got a lot of rewards. But I was like, my initial want with the film was people using it for awareness. And so you can say, you watch the film and you can give it to your mom and dad or a teacher, whatever. And, you know, I'm blown away by how well it works. And how often I get like emails saying, thank you, you have you changed my life from just making a film about how I felt as a kid. It's quite strange. It's bizarre. It is. I mean, that's the fascinating thing about art is when you authentically represent your truth, as it were, if you can have such a thing as truth in art, from going to the specific, you hit on the very general of how people feel in that moment. I mean, I, I showed it to my mum and she adored it. She loved it. She's dyslexic as well and, and struggled immensely at school. So she was always fiercely uh, set that if any of her children, I'm, I'm the only one, thankfully, who is dyslexic, was dyslexic, that she'd um, help provide structures that she didn't have when she was younger. Because unfortunately, when she was young, you were just considered stupid. Yeah, same. Same with my mom. She's dyslexic as well. She got diagnosed with dyslexia, or it wasn't called dyslexia back then. But she was told, watch out, you may get blackout. And she walked around being really afraid for, to just suddenly fall over and get a blackout. Wow. But what they actually meant was that when you're reading, you may lose where you are. Yes. <laughs> right. And I'm just like, how much trauma <laughs> have these people created in children or now grown up? Yeah. It's so sad. I talk to people with dyslexia and other learning differences from all ages. And I, the more I talk to people who are older, uh, my, 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 I don't know how old you are or, or my, or your mom is, but you know, when you start to get up to the fifties, people really have a very negative view on, on learning and, you know, they're trapped in, in their diagnosis, as I like to call them, call it. Yeah. They, they really are dyslexia. If you know what I mean, I would say myself, I am not dyslexia. It's a guide for me. It's like, oh yeah, I have this thing. My diagnosis says this is what I'm not so good at. Then I'm like looking at it like, okay, I can use this to my advantage to see what I can use to compensate for that. And it's some people are just not only for themselves, but also their children giving this mindset further. It's it's scary. Yeah. I mean, I had a, an incredible teacher at a drama school who, she was a movement teacher and she essentially make us find our physical limitations so we'd really um we'd be finding the the most difficult uh, sort of physical pattern that we could repeat so we'd find what our physical limitations are so our creative limitations are and then from there we know what we can do when you know what not to do you know what to do and i think you're right that you know people get too stuck in what they can't do 
and not use it as a as a way of going well if i know i'm not good at that or i know i'm not very good at that well i know the things i can do and the things that i, I might be able to creatively try but it goes back again to like we are not taught that and we are not encouraged to do that we've just been told here everything you've done wrong and i don't know about you but most of the time i was not explained to me what did i do wrong you know and i i know i don't know about uk but norway has new teaching or learning reforms in place where they're going to focus more on comprehension of self and, and mastery in learning so i'm optimistic and hope that that will change to be a little bit better <laughs> so let's see but of course it goes both ways right i i'm sure your mom like mine has been a, what i what i call a tiger mom yes really fighting for their child <laughs> because they know how hard it is yeah so shout out to all of those awesome parents <laughs> shout, out, shout out to the awesome parents uh, i know i was exceptionally lucky you know the, the lottery of life to to have a parent who was so fierce in uh trying to get me the help that i needed it, it leads me neatly on to my last last term um, question which is what advice you would give to young people or people who've been diagnosed slightly later in life with dyslexia I, I i say the same thing that i say to everyone regardless of age it may sound strange but the same the same thing you hear uh, always you need to focus on what makes you happy and really reflect okay how if i like playing minecraft for example or if i like being with horses go out there be with the horses see how you can use that interest of yours to to a benefit you know we live in your current day you can do anything and post it online and you can be successful with it it's easier now than ever you live from those things but not only that like if you are able to take an example i know this one person he loved playing computers like playing different games and what he ended up doing was working as a, a computer engineer you know he could he could go into gaming but he realized through his interest that it's not only the game he likes but he likes comprehending and, and looking at the computer there's so many ways you can take your interests right you know i i didn't think that i would study special education from being interested in in art but it led me there because not only were i interested in art i was interested in comprehending how i learn and therefore other people learn so there's always so much to comprehend about yourself and your interest in whatever it is and actually dare to say i even though maybe it might give me less money or whatever it is i'm actually more happy doing whatever it is than being in a system or or a job that is the repetitive like i i i need to be creative i guess the reason why i'm a freelancer i can do things my way i know that how that's how i work but of course people are different but uh, i encourage people to figure out what you like to do why do you like to do it how can you use it to benefit yourself and learn from yourself and develop into a learning technique and a general way of life i love that of course that can take time but we have time <laughs> yeah i love that thank you thank you man so much as i said we're going to put all the links to your brilliant films and your your youtube channel in in the, in the breakdown thank you enjoy those and thank you so much for joining me thank you so much for having me a real pleasure 
You've been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia with me, Juma McGowan. My guest was the animator, artist and director Mads Johan Ogar. There are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its services, go to dyslexia-help.org.